uh, was here in Africa. It's not always that we welcome um, a Nigerian scholar based in Cape Town and we say to him, welcome to Africa. So you are welcome, <laughs> sir. Um, given that you come from Antarctica, you know, the southern tip of the continent. Um, it is really my singular honor and pleasure to introduce to you uh, Dr. Adekeya uh, Adebajo. Our paths crossed about 23 years ago. We were still in primary school at the time. No, I'm joking. I'm just trying to pretend that I'm young. Uh, in, in England. And uh, I'm afraid to say I tried to shed him along the way. Uh, but I couldn't. And as they say, if you can't uh, beat them, uh, join him at the hip. Um, I would like to introduce Dr. Adabajo and say, without any shred of, of hesitation, that he is um, uh, arguably uh, one of the most respected, one of the most influential scholars, African scholars of his generation. Um, one of the most prolific uh, scholars, uh, a stickler for detail, does not compromise on quality, the author of uh, many books. I've been playing catch up for the last uh, 23 years, but I've got one excuse. I've got a wife, children, and a credit card to take care of. He doesn't have all those constraints. So if he's ahead of the curve in terms of the books, uh, I haven't given up on overtaking. But just to give an example, apart from this brilliant book that we're launching tonight, just two of his most recent books, um, three, uh, I had the privilege of co-authoring, uh, co-editing a book with um, Ade and uh, Professor Ade Deji, again, uh, probably Africa's mo uh, foremost and most respected scholar-practitioner. Uh, in 2007, South Africa in Africa, the post-apartheid era. Uh, soon after that, uh, I think it was in 2007, Nine, are uh, Gulliver's Travel, 2008. 2008. Um, he edited a very influential volume, Gulliver's uh, Troubles, referring to Nigeria, of course, as, as Gulliver, um, Nigeria's post-apartheid foreign policy. And then uh, one of his most uh, outstanding pieces of work to date He's 20, again, I must get the date right because you really churned them out. Um, the, the Curse of Berlin? 2010. 2010, okay, so he brings out one every year. I'm working on one every 18 months, but, but, but that's sort of future plans. Uh, the Curse of Berlin. Here you have a respected and renowned scholar. Just, just briefly, finally, in terms of introduction. Dr. Abadjo holds a Masters, um, an MPhil in international relations from St. Anthony's College, 
uh, at Oxford. He holds a default degree from Oxford University. He holds a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in Boston. He spent a year um, at Stanford University's um, Center for International Security uh, and Cooperation. He's the former director of the Africa program at the International Peace Academy in New York. He served on several United Nations uh, missions, including the Electoral Observer Mission to South Africa in 1994, uh, the mission to Western Sahara. Um, and again, I say without any hesitation that I don't know of another scholar who is so steeped, amongst other things, uh, in the issues of uh, the United Nations and Africa. I think we are privileged to have tonight probably the foremost international scholar on that area. We are here tonight, uh, and again, I'm thrilled to be doing it with, uh, in partnership with uh, Dr. Bauer and the library. They're really upping the ante in turning the library into a, a space for engagement and dialogue. So again, Dr. Bauer, thank you for the opportunity. But we're privileged to partner with you in launching Dr. Arabajo's latest, latest um, edited collection, um, a book titled Africa's Peacemakers, Nobel Peace Laureates of African Descent. He is the editor of the volume. He's, of course, also written the introduction, uh, has a chapter himself. So without further ado, let's put our hands together and welcome Dr. Arakea the budget. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. I hope this equipment, whatever it is, is on. Um, thank you very much, Chris, for a very generous introduction and I first want to really deeply apologize to all of you. I never want to reinforce cultural stereotypes so I always try to arrive early rather than late but I had a meeting in the foreign ministry which ran a bit late and then we ran into traffic so apologies and thanks very much all of you for being patient. Um, I want to also just uh, acknowledge my gratitude to both Chris and Rukea for bring, putting this together. So it's fantastic. Since I've kept you waiting long enough, I think I should launch into this. And I was going to talk for 45 minutes, but I think I'll keep it to half an hour so that we can at least have some exchange, um, hopefully, that's lively. So my talk is uh, titled Obama's Noble Ancestors from Bunch to Barack and Beyond. The political liberation of Africa was complete in May 1994 when Nelson Mandela became president of a democratic South Africa and in his speech to the US Congress five months later Mandela quoted his fellow Nobel Peace Laureate Martin Luther King Jr's famous words free at last free at last Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Two of the 20th century's greatest Pan-African struggles, the civil rights and the anti-apartheid struggles, were thus inextricably linked. Both of these liberation struggles, of course, in Africa and the US, focused on combating racial injustice and social inequality, 
and the black ghettos of the American civil rights struggle mirrored the black townships of the anti-apartheid struggle as the major cauldrons in which these battles were waged. Last year, the African Union commemorated 50 years since the birth of its predecessor, the Organization of African Unity, which embodied the quest for Pan-African Unity. The AU designated the African diaspora as a sixth sub-region, in addition to Africa's five sub-regions, thus recognizing the continuing relevance of this historical relationship. The continent has also embarked since 1960 on a quest for what Kenyan scholar Ali Mazrui described as a Pax Africana, which is a peace that is created, consolidated by Africans themselves. And in a way, um, this collection uh, seeks to draw lessons for peacemaking, civil rights, socioeconomic justice, environmental protection, nuclear disarmament, and women's rights that have been based on the rich experiences of the 13 Nobel laureates of African descent who won the prize between 1950 and 2011. So in a real sense, these are the prophets of Pax Africana that we're looking at and examining. This collection is lucid, jargon-free essays that are written by prominent interdisciplinary team of 14 African and African-American scholars and practitioners. So we have an Ali Mazrui, a scholar, writing on Barack Obama and some of his antecedents in the Pan-African struggle. And you have a, a practitioner, Butros Butros Ghali, who was the UN Secretary General between 92 and 96, writing on Anwar Sadat, whom he served as Deputy Foreign Minister of Egypt, and Boutros, of course, is a scholar-diplomat in his own right as well. So it's the first book comprehensively to have addressed this important issues, focusing on these prophets from Africa and its diaspora. African-Americans like Nobel Peace Laureates Ralph Bunch, who won the prize in 1950, and Martin Luther King in 1964, played an important role in the Pan-African struggle with Bunch leading the creation of the UN's Trusteeship Council in 1947 and King championing decolonization efforts. And both of them also attended Kwame Nkrumah's inauguration as the leader of Ghana in 1957, which was also quite symbolic in terms of linking the struggles between Africa and its diaspora. And part of why I wrote this book is that I think that many of the links between Africa and its diaspora that were established, for example, during the anti-apartheid struggle, when the Congressional Black Caucus and groups like TransAfrica really fought the battle along with others in the US Congress, that link and that bridge has been somewhat eroded, even though we have a black man in the White House presently. But we'll get to him and deal with him a bit later. <laughs> South Africa was, of course, the last African country to gain political independence from colonial rule in 1994, even if it was a special type of colonialism. And it's appropriate that four of its citizens have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Albert Lutuli in 1960, Desmond Tutu in 1984, 
Nelson Mandela and controversially F.W. de Klerk in 1993. And I know this university may have links to de Klerk, so we should also engage uh, with that legacy as well. And the ancient civilization of Egypt has produced two Nobel Peace Laureates in Sadat in 1978 and Mohamed El-Baradai in 2005. Ghana, which produced one of the greatest prophets of Pax Africana in Kwame Nkrumah, has been honored with the award of the Nobel Peace Prize to Kofi Annan in 2001. And Kenya, which was the site of one of Africa's greatest indigenous anti-colonial struggles, the Mau Mau movement against British rule of 1952 to 1960, produced a Nobel Peace Laureate in Wangari Maathai in 2005. Liberia, one of Africa's oldest republics, founded in 1847 by freed black American slaves, has produced the two most recent African Nobel Peace Laureates, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Lemme Bowie, both in 2011. The first American president of African descent, Barack Obama, a Kenyan Kansan, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, and his career was inspired by both Martin Luther King's civil rights struggle, as well as Nelson Mandela's anti-apartheid struggle, and those are two of his great heroes who he's always identified. India's political spiritual leader, Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi, was nominated for the prize five times and shortlisted three times but was controversially and outrageously never awarded the prize due to the political clout of the British Empire, which had close ties with Norway, which awards the prize. The prize is actually awarded by five Norwegians elected by its parliament uh, every year. So that's also something you can discuss, just as it should be a little bit shocking that five Swedes get to determine the literature taste of the world by awarding the prize. Five Norwegians award this particular prize as well. Gandhi's nonviolent struggle served as an inspiration to eight of our Nobel laureates that we discuss here today. Ralph Bunch, Lutuli, King, Sadat, Tutu, Mandela, Obama, and Bowie. So these 15 essays seek to make connections between the struggles for peace, justice, and freedom, and the 13 individuals of African descent who have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Bunch and Martin Luther King, for example, marched together during the civil rights struggle in the 50s and 60s. Lutuli and King issued a joint declaration in 1962 against the excesses of the apartheid government. Mandela worked together against apartheid with the, with the ANC, with Lutuli, and he was, of course, the volunteer-in-chief during the defiance campaign. Mandela appointed Desmond Tutu as head of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and we'll talk about him, while F.W. de Klerk, as a young apartheid-supporting student leader, invited Lutuli to address fellow students at South Africa's Pochettstrom University in 1961. I hope I pronounced that properly. They've probably changed the name of that, or should, if they haven't. 
there are other interactions and connections between our 13 Nobel Prize laureates. Um, Barack Obama, for example, met Tutu in South Africa as a US senator in 2006. Obama and Mandela embodied charismatic leadership. Kofi Annan and Mohammed El Baradai were self-effacing technocrats rather than politicians who rose up the ranks and sought to act as a force for good in the world, promoting the values of their organizations. Wangari Matai, Johnson Sirleaf, and Lemma Bowie all acted courageously pursuing women's rights through methods that directly confronted authority. All three also left abusive partners uh, to be on their own and waged unorthodox struggles. And Matai worked with Anan and Tutu to promote environmental issues. In 2006, then-Senator Barack Obama planted a tree with Matai in Nairobi's Uhuru Park. And both El Baradai and Obama shared the desire to rid the world of nuclear weapons. Over two centuries ago, Jesus of Nazareth, in returning to his homeland, famously noted that no prophet is honored in his own land. Six of our Nobel laureates suffered this fate. Ralph Bunch was more recognized in international circles than he was in the United States. Sadat was revered in the West, but shunned and isolated in both the Middle East and Africa. El Baradai failed in his bid to play a more prominent role in Egyptian politics after returning home. Johnson Sirleaf also failed disastrously in her first bid to become Liberia's president in 1997. Anand spent only two years back in Ghana heading the tourist board before returning to the United Nations. Matai's environmental activism was also more recognized abroad than it was in Kenya. And five of our subjects, it's also important to note, Sadat, De Klerk, Mandela, Johnson, Sirleaf, and Obama, were heads of state burdened by governmental power, which sometimes constrained them from pursuing the values for which they had been awarded or won the prize. So I want to go through the 13 laureates quickly in a little bit more detail so that we have enough time to actually discuss. Ralph Bunch, the scholar-diplomat, was the first black person um, to have won the prize in 1950. His skillful mediation in the Middle East won him the award, and he served the UN for another two decades, contributing to peacemaking efforts in both the Swiss crisis and the Congo crisis in the 50s and 60s. But he ran into trouble with another Pan-African icon, Patrice Lumumba, who felt that he was actually promoting pro-American policies in the Congo. Martin Luther King Jr. became the youngest winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 at the age of only 35. Bunch and the civil rights establishment opposed King's anti-Vietnam stance because they thought it might reverse some of the gains they had had in the civil rights and kind of alienate Lyndon Johnson and the power establishment. But they basically agreed to disagree and work together for the most part on the civil rights struggle. As the first African-American US president was preparing to send more troops 
to wage war in Afghanistan, word came through in October 2009 that Obama had won the Nobel Peace Prize. Some of his foreign policy actions, of course, have unfortunately followed in the hawkish footsteps of his predecessor, George W. Bush, leading many to ask whether this isn't effectively Bush with a smile, a more charismatic Bush, but doing more or less the same thing. So I was rather disappointed when Johannesburg actually gave him an honorary doctorate because I don't know why you would give a warmonger an honorary doctorate. So I'm so glad I have the chance to actually say this uh, in this forum. While Bush ordered 50 drone strikes in eight years, Obama ordered three, he ordered 375 strikes in four and a half years. These actions have kill, had killed an estimated 3,500 people, including hundreds of innocent civilians by May 2013. As a result, um, some have been forced to ask about what Obama's real intentions are in terms of winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And we know he's very well intentioned, but the road to hell is paved with the best of intentions. So we have to look at what he actually does and not just what he says as a brilliant orator and one of the most eloquent prophets of this particular century. The previously idealistic president has been taught how to kill since becoming president six years ago. He often resembles a tragic Macbethian figure, unable to wipe the blood of his victims off his permanently stained hands. In his Nobel speech, Obama controversially referred to fellow Nobel Peace Laureate Albert Schweitzer, who won the prize in 1952, as among, and I quote, the giants of history, putting him alongside Mandela and Martin Luther King. Schweitzer was, of course, a French-German doctor who set up a mission hospital in Gabon in 1913, and he is widely viewed as a racist who referred frequently to black Africans as primitives and savages. And Schweitzer also despised Islam, the religion of Obama's grandfather. So Obama's wife is part of this Bring Back Our Children campaign, and it's, of course, tragic what is happening in northern Nigeria and the kidnapping of the 250 uh, school children. But what I think we also need to interrogate is why is there not more empathy for the women and children that Michelle Obama's husband has killed? Innocent people, 3,500 of them. And I think we have to at least look at some of these equivalences as is there an aristocracy of death in which some lives are worth more than others? The president of the ANC, Albert Lutuli, was the first African, as opposed to black person, to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1960. Coming shortly after the Sharpeville massacre in South Africa, the award was an attempt to highlight apartheid's brutalities. Lutuli, the black Moses who titled his autobiography, Let My People Go, uh, was president of the ANC from 1951 until his death in 1967. He was a priest and traditional chief from rural KwaZulu-Natal who uniquely was able to bridge the urban and rural masses 
of the ANC's support base of Africa's oldest liberation movement, of course. He was involved in the defiance campaign I talked about earlier in 52, led acts of civil disobedience, was jailed and banned, but he stuck doggedly to his principles of Gandhian nonviolence and passive resistance. For Lutuli, who was an ordained priest, the road to freedom lay through the cross, and sacrifices and suffering would be required in order to translate Jesus' love ethic into concrete achievements. So the crown, the cross, sorry, had to come before the crown, and sacrifices were needed to win freedom. Desmond Tutu is another troublesome priest, like Lutuli, who won the prize in 1984 for his quest for socio-economic justice in apartheid South Africa. And Tutu was a fearless, fearless anti-apartheid activist who not only challenged the evil system, but would wade into crowds in the township in his purple cassock to pluck out victims of necklace and people who are about to be necklaced and just throw himself around them. He really did make a lot of courageous acts during this particular time. And I think it's also important to note that um, Tutu also helped to galvanize the global sanctions movement in the late 1980s and was quite instrumental as an eloquent spokesperson for sanctions against the apartheid regime. Tutu is, however, quite a narcissistic fellow. I think a priest in business day to day accused him of dining with Satan because he had supported this idea of euthanasia. He's someone that can't stay out of the headlines and you wonder why a priest is so obsessed with publicity. Um, during the during the Dalai Lama visit, some of you will remember in October 2011, he histrionically described the ANC-led government as being worse than the apartheid regime. He's also said he would pray against them. Those prayers have not worked yet. Um, and critics have also highlighted Tutu's celebration of the cult of celebrity, hobnobbing with stars like Bono, who serenaded the arch during his 80th birthday. These are people that patronize and trivialize African causes. And I think the fact that two fading Irish rock stars, Bono and Bob Geldof, are the ones speaking on behalf of Africa, shows the poverty of leadership on many of these issues. Madonna too goes and lifts a baby in Malawi. Prince Harry, when he gets into trouble, goes there and goes to AIDS orphans, you know, they must stop using Africa as this prop to kind of play out different causes. So I'm afraid to, to despite my admiration for his anti-apartheid activities, falls into that a little bit. Mandela, I have very few criticisms of, of course, um, but uh, he personally embodied his people's aspirations for a democratic future. And like an avuncular saint, he emerged from prison without any apparent bitterness towards his former enemies and tirelessly promoted national reconciliation. The Nobel Laureate has been widely celebrated, of course, as one of the greatest political saints of the last century. And the charisma of this founding father helped Africa's young democratic institutions to flower 
between 94 and 99, given a former global pariah and international stature it could never have dreamt of. And I think if you're going to put Mandela in a pantheon of founding fathers, his stature would be like that of a George Washington for America or a Mahatma Gandhi for India. I guess the only criticism I would have of Mandela is that he may have ended up doing more long-term damage as president by papering over racial differences and not forcing whites to show more contrition to their largely black victims of apartheid. So the national high priest appears to have absolved whites of their sins without proper confession and penance. So it's very nice to have tea with Favut Widow and to put on the Springbok t-shirt. It's all part of a reconciliation, but it must not just be symbolism. People must actually, you know, kind of see that there was a moral, uh, there was a moral issue there where one side were largely the victims and the other the perpetrators. And those perpetrators, whether they supported the system or not, gained privileges from that very system. So it's very strange when you write and, you know, you have a 70 to 80% black majority country in which in newspapers and other fora, it's almost as if the blacks are now being termed the racists, which is an absolute absurdity. It turns logic on its head completely. So I think it's important we actually see that um, people actually accept that things were done in their name or that they benefited from a particular system. So it's not just a matter of continuing to pay tax, it's actually acknowledging that a wrong was made. In a TV interview with Christian Amanpour on CNN in May 2012, Apartheid's last president, F.W. de Klerk, caused widespread outrage when he appeared to defend the apartheid system, which had legalized racism in South Africa. On closer inspection, however, the greater outrage may actually be that so many people were surprised by de Klerk's views. Repudiating apartheid would have represented an act of political parasite for de Klerk as his entire family history was based on the implementation of apartheid. He did not help end apartheid because it was morally repugnant, but because, in his own words, it failed as a system of political control and socio-economic engineering. So many of his relatives, his father, his grandfather, had been National Party or, you know, um, apartheid stalwarts. So, there was really nothing surprising there, and he's put it on the public record in his autobiography, many of these reactionary views. The president of Egypt from 1970 to 81, Anwar Sadat, the tragic peacemaker, as a child used to dress up like Gandhi and meditate on the roof of his home in Cairo. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize after his historic trip to Jerusalem in 1977. Sadat had gambled that going to war against Israel in 1973 would secure peace. He thus paradoxically waged war in order to find peace. And when he made his historic visit to Jerusalem in 77, he drew from his experiences of traditional leaders in Egyptian villages. 
True to his peasant roots, he felt he needed to break bread with the enemy and talk. And Sadat was single-minded and stubborn, but he took risks for peace. Uh, And in the end, his arrogance, naivete, and exaggerated trust in Washington as an honest broker led to his martyrdom killed by his own soldiers during a military parade in 1981. Egypt's second Nobel Peace Laureate in 2005 was Mohamed al-Baradai, the rocket man who was Director General of the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency between 1997 and 2009. And he called for the peaceful use of atomic energy and a nuclear-free world. And he also was a man full of integrity who criticized Washington's belligerent approach and refusal to negotiate with Iran while seeking to domineeringly set the terms of a solution, and also its irrational approach in attacking a country, Iraq, without nuclear weapons, while watching helplessly as another North Korea acquired them. Ghana's Kofi Annan served as UN Secretary General between 1997 and 2006, and he shared the Nobel Peace Prize in 2001 with his organizations. In his 10 years, Kofi Annan sought to act as a secular pope on the East River, promoting issues of humanitarian intervention and helping to deploy troops to Africa. But the one stain on his record he's never been able to forget is that while serving as head of UN peacekeeping, the Rwanda genocide happened and he did not act decisively when he got a warning a few months before, warning that the genocide was going to happen. Instead, he was, of course, promoted and awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, But having effectively been put in office by Washington, D.C., the Bush administration turned against Kofi Annan, turning him into a lame duck in the last two years of his tenure. They used the Iraq oil for food scandal, there was some corruption there, and other issues to basically go after Kofi Annan politically. And he finally and painfully discovered the ancient wisdom that one needs a long spoon to stop with the devil. (laughs) Kenyan environmental campaigner Wangari Matai died from cancer at the age of 71 in 2011, a month before two African women joined the elite ranks of Nobel Peace Laureates. She fought tirelessly to save the country's forests and fight for the plight of rural women, planting over 30 million trees across Africa in the process. With her life struggles complete, the Earth Mother basically left us in 2011. The awarding of the Peace Prize to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Liberia's president, for championing women's rights in 2011, four days before a presidential election, must count as one of the most controversial and political acts in the history of this prize. You can't imagine a European or North American leader being awarded a Nobel Peace Prize four days before an election because it would be seen, obviously, as an attempt to influence that election. Uh, So I think not only was that controversial, but views of 
Ellen Johnson Sirleaf because she has a fantastic propaganda machinery. People like Hillary Clinton, powerful friends. Views of her abroad tend to be very different from views closer to home in Liberia and West Africa. This is, of course, the woman that gave Charles Taylor, the Liberian warlord, $10,000 uh, at the beginning of the civil war in Liberia, um, which took so many lives. She has built some infrastructure, though, and cancelled debt in her time as Liberia's president. So she does have some achievements, but a controversial choice. Lemaboui, a 41-year-old Liberian former social worker, has been key in West Africa's women's movements. And she served on Liberia's Truth and Reconciliation Commission and had been a supporter of Johnson Sirleaf. But the relationship soared, soured spectacularly in 2012 when Bowie resigned as head of Liberia's Truth Commission, accusing Johnson Sirleaf of nepotism. Three of her sons were in key government positions, as well as neglecting to address the widening gap between rich and poor. In concluding, Chair, none of Obama's ten noble heirs of African descent, nor the two that came after him, were in a powerful enough position to actually secure world peace. The young Afro-Saxon president of the most powerful nation of Earth, Obama, is the first Nobel Peace Laureate of African descent who has had a chance to leave an indelible mark on global peace and security. He has only two years left to do that, and one can argue that he's had bad luck in terrible opponents in the do-nothing Congress who have frustrated him all the way. But he was the only one that could have, for example, supported UN and regional peacekeeping efforts, secured peace in the Middle East, promoted nuclear disarmament, confronted domestic and international racism, championed environmental and women's rights. I want to end where I started with the most deserving Nobel Peace Laureate not to have won the prize, Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi noted in 1936, and I quote, that it was maybe through the Negroes that the unadulterated message of nonviolence will be delivered to the world, end of quote. Through the example of our 13 prophets of Pax Africana, could this prophecy yet be fulfilled? Amen.